my message this morning was not the message that I last Sunday was intending to bring, but in light of last week's message and uh, a lot of the feedback and everything that I received, um, it's pretty obvious that I needed to do a sequel. And I had to do some substantial editing on the fly in the first service, did more editing between services. So if this is incoherent, we'll decide which is the better of the incoherent ones and post that one online. You can go back and try again on a redo. I'm going to take the first part of this to do some uh, recapping and uh, you know review of last week's message to set this whole thing up. And uh, so I want to look at Mark chapter 10 where we've been working our way through the book of Mark beginning verses 2 through 5. This is what we read. Again, old material. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and he said to them, well, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Again, God knowing the dastardly nature of the heart of man, allowed Moses to issue a certificate of divorce, specifying the reason for the divorce. And what I really wanted to hone in on last week in particular was that, that this was actually a merciful concession by God. It was a merciful safeguard for the wife, because in that day, only the husband, first of all, could divorce his wife. And the husband could divorce his wife for any reason and for no reason, literally. And of course, what that would spawn is you have a woman now who has the stigma of divorce. If you think it's, you know, there was a stigma in previous generations of ours, you can imagine what it was like back then. And depending on what the reason for the divorce was, if it was adultery or fornication, she was now unmarriageable, meaning she was destined to be single the rest of her life and all that that meant in an agrarian society, having to fend for herself. But you see, until this writ of divorce was allowed by God, they didn't have to specify any kind of reason. And so you see how the woman was kind of left very stranded. And so Godness, because of the hardness of men's hearts, said, okay, Moses, look, here's what I want you to do. We're going to permit this to happen where they're going to have to specify what the reason is. And again, with the exception of adultery or fornication, then the woman could be remarried. It was an act of mercy on God's part. The writ of divorce that Moses gave them made the man determine or spell out formally what the reason for his divorce was, whereas before he didn't have to even have a reason, much less spell it out. And so, like I said, if it wasn't for those two reasons, some kind of sexual immorality, then the woman could at least be remarried again. Well, the single most important takeaway probably from last week's prequel on the divorce issue that was, remember, put to Jesus in the first place by Pharisees, by the disingenuous Pharisees, who really weren't asking to find out information. They just wanted to trap him. But despite all that, what we learn is that God's plan for mankind from the very beginning was that marriage was to be a permanent situation interrupted only by the death of a spouse. And last week I took us through the theological picture that is bound up in this 
hallowed marriage relationship of one man and one woman, united under God until death do they part. And the crux of that theological picture, which again is spelled out for us in Ephesians chapter 5, which we spend some time in, is that the husband's relationship to his wife is a living picture of Jesus' own relationship to his bride, which is defined in Scripture as the church, the universal church of Christ. And as we saw, Jesus gave up everything for his bride. His coming for his bride didn't benefit him. And yet Jesus, nonetheless, in knowing that, was very pleased to do it because above all else, even beyond any kind of personal gain, of which he received none, even at, the, at having to basically shed his godly prerogatives in becoming of man, he was pleased to do it because above all else, he wanted to just obey God the Father. And then what we're told is that this is how men today and in every day and age is to think of their roles as husbands. Now the woman... The wife, she also has an assigned role by God Almighty. The wife, you see, is the other half of that living pictorial of the church's relationship to its head, who is Jesus. And so for that reason, the wife is commanded to be submissive to her husband, even as the church is submissive to her husband, Jesus. And I'm always tempted there to insert, as the church is supposed to be submissive to its head, Jesus. Now, if the husband is loving his bride in the way that Jesus loves his bride, there would never be any kind of, an abu- of, of abuse in a situation. There would never be any taking advantage. There would never be any presumptuous expectation. And there would certainly not be any kind of enumeration, be it literally or at least in one's mind, of, of how much they're expending in this relationship versus what they are getting in return. So when Jesus came to earth for his bride, he came for one reason, and that was to give, not to take, but to give. And he came solely for her benefit, as I said, without and without him and coming and giving in that way, his bride would be devastated. And what did he give? Well, Philippians 2, I think, summarizes better than anything where Jesus in becoming man gave up, as I mentioned, those godly prerogatives, humbling himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And in the very next verse after Philippians 2, 5 through 7 is that being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is what he did for his bride. And we, again, are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Now, I hadn't heard it this time, but years ago when I did a very similar message, I got some feedback from a couple of men saying that, you know, boy, it really seems like you let the ladies off the hook. (laughs) Okay, first of all, that's kind of a red flag, you know, or at least could be. says, it seems like you're awfully heavy on the husband's responsibility, but kind of light on the wife's responsibility. And, you know, I totally get that, and I do understand that. And part of that is intentional because... In God's arrangement of the husband being the head of household, the husband is created to be the loving initiator. And the wife 
has been created to be the loving responder. And these two differences between male and female, the initiator and the responder, is intrinsic to our being. And fundamentally, the way that God has made man and woman, we are different. Men and women are absolutely equal, but we are not the same. And you would think, well, duh. But that's no longer a duh. Of all those, as all those lines and all the hyperfeminism and the hyperchauvinism and everything just came crashing together in the late 60s and played out now through, through current times and everything else. No, there's this, this, this misunderstanding that somehow equality means sameness in that suggestion of sameness. There's the suggestion of superiority of the male and inferiority of the female. So God created man and woman to be absolutely equal, but also very different. And there we have yet one more reason why the whole LGBT is an affront to God. And by divine design, it cannot work. Gender is hardwired. That I even have to say this is indicative of the times in which we live. Gender is hardwired. It is not merely a social construct. You can't just determine I'm one gender one day and another gender another day. Well, what is the bride's role in this relationship? As we read in... uh, Genesis last week, and then it's implied, it's not spelled out in Ephesians 5. But what we read is the role of the woman in marriage is to be the helper for her husband, not a slave, not a hireling, but a helper in a complementary part of what comprises a whole. See, ah, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm, nice. Nice try, pastor. The woman is the helper. And you see, it it has a derisive sound to it, but only because our culture is so apostate, is so far removed from God, that we just we take things and, and Satan fuels our passions in our flesh and we start reading into things and we make things mean what they don't really mean because honestly, if the helper somehow has, has a pejorative meaning, we're in kind of a pickle here. If we're saying that that in and of itself implies inferiority to the male, we've got a theological issue. What do you mean by that? Well, John 14:26, just one of four times this is used. John writes, but the helper the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The Holy Spirit is referred to, named, called the helper four times in the New Testament. There is equality without sameness in the Trinity. Is there not? Who died on the cross? 
Did the Holy Spirit die on the cross? No. Did God the Father die on the cross? Mm -mm. God the Son died on the cross. So are we saying then that if helper is a pejorative and that equality means sameness, we've got a theological quandrum here. So you see, you can have equality, absolute equality, pure equality, without being the same. As Jesus' wife, the church is to submit to his headship and authority, and an earthly wife is to submit to the headship and authority of her Jesus-like husband. Now, we're not naive, but Jesus, out of love, only ever does what is best for his bride. And his bride is so important to him that he pours himself out for her. Who, male or female, would not crave such a relationship and willingly respect and submit to a loving, caring leader? And for all the lying accusations from the devil's domain about Christianity and how Christianity inherently subjugates women and demeans women, the historical record shows clearly that Jesus elevated the status of women as never before in history. That's why the disciples were scandalized in John chapter 4 when they see Jesus talking to the woman, to the Samaritan woman, a double whammy, a Samaritan ugh, and a woman. Ugh. And here the one they think is their Savior and their Lord, who's God incarnate, that, that he would know better. Why is he talking to this woman? No, Christianity has elevated the place of women in society. But men are sin-tainted. And women are sin-tainted. And so this pictorial of the living gospel of Christ called marriage takes on all kinds of undesirable iterations with both men and women falling derelict to each of their God-assigned roles. With what result? With the result that marriages fall apart when one or both determine that they are getting less than what they are putting into it. Reality sets in. God's plan and model or ideal for marriage is unchanging. And whereas Jesus' bride does have a truly perfect husband, Jesus' bride, the church now, remember the church is his bride, us, but not just this church, but the church gathered, has a perfect husband. And so the church has no excuse not to respect and affirm and follow her leader. But is that reality? <laughs> All you have to do is look at Christ's bride. And so things go wrong. And when a person's heart gets connected with someone other than one's spouse, the most devout Christian is likely to succumb to what their heart tells them rather than what the Word of God tells them. That's just reality. Their proper application of God's principles for life presume a blank slate in a manner of speaking. Now, this is where this may get a little confusing. I'm, I'm going to try and straighten this out as I go along here. No promises. 
when God gives not just this, this, his principles, his commands concerning divorce, but basically any and all of the issues in Scripture that he's given us pertaining to life and godliness, how to live life, how to navigate you know, this world successfully with, with, you know, with a godly, divine, defined prosperity. He comes giving us his counsel and his wisdom for life as if we are a blank slate. Before I move in back into the divorce, I want to try again to start with a different subject to try and help you see what I mean. This is just not, it's just been hard for me to explain. So let's just take the issue of money and finances, okay? When Barbara and I became Christians, we were, and I mean when we were embryonic Christians, we were very, very young in the Lord. We were being discipled by a parachurch organization called the Navigators, and we ended up Again, we were only a couple months old, I think, in the Lord, and we ended up at a conference. And the man with the Navigators was speaking on, uh, on money and finances. And he said, if you want to get out of debt, increase your giving, meaning to the Lord. And you know what? I was really intrigued by that. One, because we had no debt. When you're living on the outstanding $500 a month, which I think we might have been making in that day with the Army, that was it. 500 a month. <laughs> we lived out of our envelope budget. Okay? And you could rob Peter to pay Paul. But when the money was gone in the envelopes, you were done buying. <laughs> I know. Today, people are going, what? <laughs> now, credit was available. But we just, for whatever reason, just didn't want to live on credit. So if we didn't have it, we didn't need it. And from that day, only months old in the Lord, we started tithing 10% of our gross income to the Lord. Now, I use this as an illustration of what I mean by the blank slate. We had no debt. We're starting out. And based on God's principle, Malachi 3, and then again Matthew uh, 6.33, we just started tithing to him and trusting him for any and everything that we would need. And from that day forward, we have never, ever even come close to having a lack or a need. And quite to the contrary, we have done spectacular things, gone to spectacular places. We live very well. We've always lived very well. Even when we were living in poverty, according to government statistics, we've done very well. And it was just God showing himself to be God. But now here, here is where it gets icky, theological term. So over the years, people come to me and they go, boy, you know, we're, we're growing in, in Christ and our faith and everything else, and we are really starting to become convicted of this need to, you know, bring the tithe to the Lord. But we live as it is. We live, I mean, paycheck to paycheck to the point where if there's anything unforeseen, you know, a flat tire and we got to buy a new tire or something, we don't have it. And we keep getting further and further into debt. We just don't see how we can do this. Tell us what to do. And I go, it's icky. Because God gave this wisdom and this counsel coming into this as a blank slate. You're coming into it down the road now with all these balls and chains of debt and consumer debt and credit card debt and everything else. And you're asking me, how do we go and fix it? I do give some counsel. I do give some practical guidance and everything else. But it's... It just, 
It's not easy. It doesn't work the way it should, the way God planned it. Okay, so there's the illustration that's supposed to clarify things. Now, concerning divorce, when God's given his counsel to us about divorce, he does so looking at us in terms of being blank slates, meaning, ideally, we're not even married yet. So here we are and say, you're all waiting to get married, and you're in pre-marriage counseling, and you've come to see one of the pastors here, and you're getting pre-marriage counseling, and we talk about divorce along with marriage and we give you God's plan in view of divorce before it's even on the table before it's even a consideration before it's even a possibility you're not even married yet so now you go into marriage understanding what at an empirical level is God's plan for marriage so that now when you get down in your marriage and things start getting a little dicey maybe in your relationship and things start to, you know, and all that that happens all too often in marriages, you've already got in your mind what God's plan for marriage is rather than either being married as, as unbelievers and that marriage fell apart and so then you get married and, and you become a believer and you start to learn what the, you know, you're growing in Christ and you have convictions about marriage and everything else. And you're sitting here wondering, well, ooh, God hates divorce. And, you know, you pounded that one enough. And, but we were divorced and, but now I'm remarried. I mean, how does all that play out? I said, well, first of all, you got to understand God's counsel for marriage and divorce was meant to be given to the blank slate. That's the easiest place to start, but we can't start there. So it's going to be complex and complicated and it's going to depend on each and every individual situation but i can tell you this just like with the whole the whole well well we're in debt over our ears and and you know you're saying that we should give 10% of our income to the work of the lord it's like i'm not telling you that that's what this is telling you. Well, how do we do it? I, you guys came into this broken, you know, with the whole thing broken, the plan broken. Well, we now look at marriage and divorce. We're coming into the whole thing broken. But I can tell you what the answer isn't, okay? One's circumstances in life must not determine God's truth and God's wisdom and counsel that he gives to us. In other words, we can't say, oh, well, that, that thing about tithing, yeah, that's great for you because you didn't have any debt when you started and you got in the habit right away. You know, but now my situation is, oh, so now we're going into situational ethics where God's commands for life and all of that change depending on what your circumstances are. No, they don't. Now we've got to figure out how to come into conformity with what God wants so that he may continue to prosper us and we can grow in his love and knowledge and all of that. All right, let's go back to divorce now. For sure in the church today, many Christians have divorce in their past, maybe even divorce in their present. Maybe there's a divorce taking place or going on, separations, who knows, whatever. If there is a divorce currently ongoing or even a prospect of divorce, put the brakes on. Put the brakes on and take a breath and seek biblical counsel. 
Because there's no way anybody can appropriately go, oh, well, here's the situation. One, two, three, four, five. Now, everything has an asterisk to it. And everything I say, probably from about this point on, has to have an asterisk to it. And the asterisk is, well, let's talk about what your past has been or what your present is. And let's talk about the biblical guidelines covering all these things. And it varies from individual to individual, from, from former marriage to current marriage to past marriage to divorce and everything in between. And again, we're not letting, letting circumstances define what is true and right. We are coming at God's precepts and commands in the ideal through mercy and grace and compassion without making excuses that, well, I'm going to do what I want to do anyway because God's a God of mercy and grace and he forgives me. And I know I'm not supposed to get divorced in this situation. And I know I don't have a leg to stand on, but I'm so in love with somebody else. We don't want that either because that's just trampling on God's mercy and grace. If you were a Christ follower when you were married and then got divorced and remarried, where perhaps you shouldn't have, you can't back that train up. Okay? You can't, well, you shouldn't have got married in the first place, so now divorce your husband. Well, huh? What? How does that work? So, no, that's not the answer. I guess, you know, a place to start is if the Spirit is speaking to you on this matter, you need to truly get before the Lord and, and just really do some business with Him because He knows your heart today. You see, in an older day, meaning in a previous day of the church, and maybe even, even 20, 30 years ago only, divorce was oftentimes branded as the unforgivable sin in the church. Meaning there were, there were churches that as a matter of, of, of doctrinal statement that if you had a divorce, forget circumstances, forget when you had the divorce, Christian or non-Christian or anything else, if you have a divorce in your history, well, you can come to our church, but you will never be in leadership and you will never hold even a position of service. Okay? That's absurd. All right? for the record. But that's what they meant by, oh yeah, divorce is the one unforgivable sin. So that's not, that's not truth and that's not helpful. Now, unfortunately, in a way, in today's culture, we've gone to the way to the other side of the spectrum where divorce, unfortunately, is viewed too often as little more substantial than running a stop sign or losing your temper. I was like, oh yeah, you're divorced. You want to get divorced? Yeah, go ahead. Do it again. Yeah, try again. You know, third time's a charm, whatever, right? Well, we know that's not the answer either. The challenge to the bride of Christ today is seeing, first of all, that God, as he says in Malachi, still hates divorce. God hates not only the permissible divorces, okay, adultery, fornication, and uh, uh, desertion, God hates all divorce. And the reason he hates all divorce, even the permissible ones, is because of the toll that divorce takes on so many people outside the limits of just the man and the woman that are being divorced. And especially the toll that it takes on the children. 
the late Judith Wallerstein. I became, uh, I don't know, I, I think I was in seminary at the time, and it might have been a, listed on one of our syllabi or something for a class, but Judith Wallerstein had just published a landmark study. Now, she wasn't a Christian. She isn't a Christian. She's now deceased. But she did a landmark study on the impact of divorce on children. And it was it, what was unique about this study is that she didn't, it wasn't a meta-analysis, which means you take a bunch of statistics and you correlate and coordinate and you come up with conclusions based on numbers and stats and all that sort of thing. She took her, her, her population, her study population, meaning the people, the children that she was going to study, and she followed them, not in a creepy way, but she followed them for 25 years. It's a long time to wait to get a book published. But she wanted to know by actual observation and experience. And when she published her book, it was kind of earth-rattling because it was published in the day when, when all of those you know, social good social uh, restrictions and, and appropriate stigmas on casual marriage and, and you know, uh, children, their children are flexible. You know, they recover very quickly. And it's always better you know, for the parents to divorce than for the kids to be exposed to constant fighting and bickering. And, and you know, that was the culture of the day. Wallerstein comes in now, and again, nobody can accuse her of being some kind of fundamentalist, Bible-beating you know, individual because she was none of those things. She just said, here's what my research showed. And what it showed was that divorce was devastating on the children. Even years and years after the fact of the divorce, and it goes into very practical ways of understanding how it was devastating on the children of divorce. Well, another thing that she also noted was that, you know, in back in that day, it was, well, you know, and it, it, like I already kind of mentioned it, that it's better to divorce than for children to grow up in an environment that's less than, less than ideal. Hello, whoever grew up in that environment, <laughs> an ideal environment. I didn't, you know, I made it sort of. Um, but the cliche of the day was that it's better for the parents to divorce, for the children to be able to live now in peaceful environments, which implies that they're going to be living in peaceful environments anyway. And all of that, she absolutely debunked that and showed that it was actually better, that meaning the children did better growing up in homes where the mother and father were bickering and arguing and fighting. Now, by fighting, I'm not talking about throwing things. I'm not talking about physical abuse. Okay, I'm just talking about a tumultuous environment where people then and back in the day were saying, yeah, get divorced. It'll be better for your kids. No, she showed that it wasn't. Compellingly. God hates divorce because of the devastation to the gospel picture designed by him. And it devastates so many lives outside the circles of the husband and wife. And like I said, beyond the children. So let me give you some concluding sound bites. These are not real satisfactory, again, because of what I've already said about the nature of the subject. I need to put an asterisk now by each one of these things I'm even going to mention just in brief. I said starting, not starting with a blank slate concerning God's view of divorce and everything else makes everything really complicated. 
But I can take, give you a, of my 30 years of experience in pastoral ministry with all of this stuff and everything that adultery, first of all, is kind of the favorite excuse of the Christian who's seeking a divorce. And the reason I say it that way, it's because, well, everybody kind of agrees. You know, I mean, the scriptures even agree, you know, and it's the whole thing that they were challenging uh, Jesus on. The Pharisees were and all of that, that, yeah, Jesus said, you know what? Yeah, you can be divorced for for adultery, okay, fornication. And so if the Christian, Christian, you know, whether it's the man or the woman, if they can come up with adultery as the reason, they're like, we're good to go. But I got to tell you, first of all, the easy part is, even in a situation where there's been adultery, okay, God desires, obviously, reconciliation, true reconciliation, not casual, flippant, repeated, oops, I made another mistake. No, 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 but real reconciliation. So in other words, the magic bullet isn't adultery. God still hates divorce, even for adultery. The other part of that is, is that, believe me, I've been around the block way too many times. Well, I'm a Christian woman. I want to obey the Lord. Uh, Adultery, okay? Basically, how can I get my husband to commit adultery? I can make, yeah, I, I can make things so miserable for him at home, and it works with the husband too. I can make her so miserable at home, you know, that she'll find comfort in somebody else's arms. And then I got the adultery card and I go away as the righteous Christian. So you see one of those little asterisks. It gets very complicated and nasty because no, neither of those is appropriate. Adultery isn't the magic, you know, get out of jail free card. And God still hates it. Then there's the who filed for divorce game. It's funny when people come in, sometimes they're already very defensive. Well, I'm not the one who filed. She filed. Yeah, I don't want a divorce. Yeah. Well, what'd you do to make life so miserable for her that she filed for divorce? What? Or the other way around? You see? So these little cliches, these little, you know, letter of the law kinds of things, they, they don't work. And they shouldn't work because God hates Divorce. Fornication. That's one of the permissible divorces. Fornication is serious business because one, it's it's not ever really pinned down. It's described more than it's like codified. Like, oh, this is fornication, this is fornication, this is fornication. It, there are a few things, but it's broad. And trying to be discreet, I will just say that Fornication includes one real perversion, but it also includes virtual perversion. And if you don't get what I'm saying there, I will just tell you that the word for fornication in the scriptures is the word porneia. So now you've put it together. Okay? Desertion. This one really gets discombobulated and sticky. Well, my husband left me. So I can get a divorce a la the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 7. Oh, well, maybe. Let's talk about this. You know, one, you seem a little gleeful about this. Again, what did you do that he couldn't stand living with you anymore? 
I'm not saying that's what I say of them, okay? That is what I'm thinking. And we get to that eventually, very tactfully. And I usually don't have to say it because they, they basically come right out with it. And again, this works both ways. The husband and the wife both have heard it every which way possible, okay? So I'm like, so, well, first of all, you know, the curious thing about desertion in 1 Corinthians 7, it's very specific. It is a situation of an unbeliever who is married to a believer, and the unbeliever, not just because the believer is annoying and obnoxious, okay, but rather because he finds their expressions of faith and growing in Christ and everything else just so offensive and intolerable, and they're just sick of even living with a Christian. They decide, I've had enough, and they leave. That's what Paul's talking about in First Corinthians 7. I don't often see that. But I've also explained to some women about desertion that really isn't explained in Scripture. And again, I may be wrong in this, but it's where I've come down knowing that I will stand before God and answer for it. If a woman is in an abusive, and by abusive I don't mean, he said something derisive about my pot roast. Okay? Be surprised the things I hear. Okay. But abusive, I mean physical abuse. All right? God has not designed anyone, man or woman, but it's almost always the woman, to be a punching bag for the spouse, ever. Okay? I don't care what the situation is. I don't care how many buttons were pushed. You get help. You do things to keep that from happening. And when that happens, you've just blown it. So now I've asked him to leave, but he won't leave. So... Why are you staying there? Well, I'm trying to submit to him and this and that. Get out of the house. And frankly, if you want to divorce him because there's a recalcitrant spirit on his heart, he's made it clear that he has no... Forget reconciliation. It's not going to happen. I said, I believe you can divorce him on the grounds of desertion. You say, well, how does that play out? I'm the one that's leaving. Desertion doesn't necessarily mean spatial proximity from and the one who spatially removes themselves. If a husband is making an environment unsafe for the wife and she leaves for her safety, the husband has effectively deserted her even though not moving spatially. Does that make any sense at all? Okay. So you see, I mean, there's just been over the, over the, the, the centuries, there's been just this, a simplistic, overly simplistic handling of some of these tough things with Scripture. I touched on it only in glancing off of it. Pre-Christian considerations. We here at Faith believe that it does matter if you were divorced pre-Christ or after Christ. But even in that, okay, let's talk about it. Let's find out what the circumstances are. I want to know. And then we rely on great wisdom from God and the Holy Spirit. We don't tow this, this, this crass Again, overly simplistic letter of the law. We look also at the spirit of the law and what God's intent was in this whole picture of marriage, remarriage, and divorce. He is a merciful, gracious God. You can be a Christian living now remarried with a divorce in your past, and maybe it was even an unbiblical, it wasn't one of the permissible reasons, but it was pre-Christ or anything else. He is a God of forgiveness, but don't you dare take that now, again, and trample on God's grace 
and go, well, my husband and I, we're both Christians and everything else, but we hate each other's guts. And, you know, we know we're not supposed to get divorced, but we're tired of even working at it. So we're going to get divorced because we know God will forgive us. Boy, you, ooh, that's a bad place to be in. And I mean with divinity. One last one. If sexual abuse is an issue in the household, you do whatever it takes to keep yourself and your children or other people's children safe. And if the abuse did not occur to the children of the household but to somebody else, the same thing goes. Well, he never abused his own children. Done. Out of here. Boom. It's about the only one that's about as as clean and clear-cut as I can come up with. I don't want to hear your answers, reasons, or excuses. You're done. There's too much riding on the health and the well-being of those innocent bystanders. All right, so, you know, I kind of feel like I've taken this little grenade, and I went... (laughs) Call me if you have any questions. Grab that arm, stick it over there, you know. But I I hope that's helpful. Um, here at Faith, I'm trying. I was trying to think of our current shepherding team. I can't think, of, but I know in the past we've had elders who have had have been divorced. Um, and again, fit into this whole in, in the case I'm thinking of. It was pre-Christ. So it's not the unforgivable sin. And even where it was inappropriate, but you are now remarried. You don't go get divorced because you shouldn't have been remarried. You're already done. So now, beginning to grow in grace and in the love of Christ in your new situation. Because your sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. Does that kind of make sense? That kind of helpful. Let me ask Paul Halley to come on up and save this whole thing. <laughs> Let's stand, please. Dear Lord, gracious Heavenly Father, we need your help on this one. As all issues in life, Lord, we need you uh, to direct us and to guide us. Uh, in Pastor Bill's message, I'm sure all of us uh, related to most of it or at least some of his message. And, Lord, um, I just pray that uh, if you are having any difficulty with your marriage, Lord, uh, it affects your whole family. So I pray that you would seek counsel and uh, seek God's word. As God's word says that uh, we are to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. So I pray that for each of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.